This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it... A real POS. You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everyone. Uh, welcome to the New Books Network. My name is Armand Childers, and I have the great pleasure of hosting Andrea Mühlebach today to talk about her recent book, A Vital Frontier, Water Insurgencies in Europe, that came out of Duke University Press. Welcome to New Books Network, Andrea. Thank you very much, Armand. Thanks for having me. Of course. Um, so before starting off, maybe... Um, for those of the listeners who don't know your work, um, can you tell us a bit about yourself? All right. Uh, I am a political and economic anthropologist uh, and wrote my first book uh, on the question of neoliberal welfare or neoliberalizing welfare uh, and how it connected to the state, to citizenship and questions of moral authoritarianism. Um, I was always in that process also interested in the question of the public and the public sphere and how um, they get transformed under neoliberal conditions. My current work, uh, which is about water utilities, in some ways picks up on this topic again. Um, That is to say, public water utilities and how they are transformed. Initially, what I thought under conditions of privatization, um, but I quickly learned that this was really about financialization. And so I've tracked these kinds of things um, across different uh, countries. Um, I've also switched in recently from the University of Toronto to um, the University of Bremen in Germany, um, a job I took for various reasons, um, but Uh, one of which was that I loved um, the job announcement, um, which uh, was um, phrased as a sort of um, designated professorship in maritime anthropology and cultures of water. And so I slipped into this job as somebody who works on water, um, but I'm now also um, increasingly teaching on questions of the oceans uh, and and maritime issues. That sounds very exciting. (laughs) And um, I, I was also curious about this kind of uh, how you moved on from the moral neoliberal into the vital frontier. Um, how, what, 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 how, what, what's the story behind this kind of transition and how did this book come about? 
Well, um, I didn't start off abstractly thinking that I want to look at public institutions and how they are transformed uh, under contemporary conditions. Um, The second book um, came about because I was looking for a story that uh, grabbed me in the profoundest of ways. And um, I had known about the Italian water movement uh, for a while, um, but only vaguely because I was uh, in the US at the time and, um, you know, was finishing my dissertation. And and then slowly but surely, um, as I went back to Italy, sort of um, flaneuring around the country, as you know, we anthropologists tend to do, just figuring out, you know, what's happening, what's interesting, um, what moves the people, so to speak. Um, I knew about the water movement. And then in 2014, um, I heard about um, a meeting, an assembly that was happening in Pisa. Um, and it was called... Um, a constitutive assembly for the redefinition of property. And um, I quickly understood that the water movement, which was responsible for this meeting and which was led by a group of quite prominent uh, Italian lawyers, that the water movement itself was never only um, a struggle against the privatization of water. It was always a, a profoundly philosophical and ethical and moral struggle about you know, what life is and what wealth is and what value is and what property is. And so, of course, it was also about the question of common property and the commons and how one can sort of institutionalize and live common forms of property uh, and the water struggle really was the perfect vehicle for me to ask philosophical questions that until this day um, you know excite me and make me very happy um, because the water movement itself uh, it turns out as I found out over I guess almost the last 10 years is this incredibly um Uh, not just creative, but shape-shifting movement, in some ways a little bit like the hydrological cycle itself. Um, People are always worried about uh, the question of water, what will happen to it if private investors invest into our utility, what happens uh, if our water is polluted, what happens if the water bills are too high. Um, But out of these very fundamental, in some ways also quite material questions, arise these very big questions that automatically in some ways arise when you're dealing with life. And of course, that is the slogan uh, that has come out of the movement for many, many decades, water is life. So what is life and how should we live it? And I mean, this kind of story took you not only to Italy, but also to Ireland and Germany. Can you tell us a bit about how those countries came together or those sites came together? Yes. Um, So I did my first interview on the water movement in Turin um, uh, with a wonderful person, Saki Bailey, who took the time to tell me a little bit about what she was doing at the time with this lawyer, um, Ugo Mattei. And as she was speaking, she was gesturing towards other water movements. And she said, oh, you know, the Italian did this in uh, 2011, but what the Berlin water table did was just as amazing. And it was very clear through these gestures um, that the movement itself is a global movement and that people were talking to each other, they were inspiring each other, um, they were supporting each other uh, across difference. Um, You know, these are very different hydrological terrains. These are very 
very, very different legal terrains, different traditions of political mobilization. And yet some of the key um, problems that water movements are dealing with are the same, mainly because the, f- the mechanisms by which utilities get um, financialized are quite similar. These public-private partnerships and you know, com- utilities being transformed into shareholder companies that sh- uh, sell their shares and so on and so forth. So political and economically, um, they were kind of confronting a certain framing that is also um, uh, uh, provided in some ways by EU regulations, uh, regulations by the European Union. But at the same time, they were dealing with very particular kinds of often very, very localized water struggles. While I was in Berlin, uh, I went with a dear friend, somebody who became a dear friend of mine, Dorothea Herlin, to Brussels uh, to attend a meeting by the European Water Movement. And there, a Spanish, the Spanish head of uh, Food and Water Europe said, but Andrea, you have to go to Ireland because water there isn't priced priced and you know the political mobilizations there are epic and so it was this constant gesturing of water activists towards where I should still go to go to Greece Thessaloniki oh you should see what's going on in Spain that in some ways I just went with the flow um quite literally however um as I say in my book I don't think of these as you know think of my book as having um sort of fully captured community struggles um because i was because i was moving a lot and continue to move a lot between these different sites um it's more that i was following the the gestures towards where the political fault lines were opening up uh, at that particular moment between 2014 and 2016 when i ended my field work uh, officially although i went back to paris actually a year later in 2017 as well uh, to do a little bit more research but yeah I I, I just t- in some ways I just did what the water uh, activists told me to do and I mean that uh, the part about Paris just comes out at the conclusion in this very surrealistic water tasting scene which was fun, <laughs> really fun to read uh, and I mean like you're bringing together all, all these connected I would say struggles and then you talk about um water constituting a kind of frontier or a financial frontier. Can you tell us a bit about this idea of the financial frontier? Yes, um, the financial frontier um, is a concept that I began to use um, because I was looking for a way to frame the book in a more general way. And um, I, it was very clear that as um, municipalities and these water utilities were increasingly in some ways um, engaged in debt financing and increasingly indebted, and as water price went up everywhere and as people started to revolt, it was clear that there were these front lines uh, and struggles that were going on between local populations and, like I said, often households um, where people couldn't pay their bills anymore and these very large-scale forces. Very often the term David and Goliath was used by the people I spoke to, um, but the term frontier itself um, became more and more plausible for me because um, um, one of the Italian water activists who was speaking specifically about um, this privatized uh, company in Campania in the Italian South 
um, said that, oh, you know, these kinds of things that they were doing uh, with the overcharging of, of water bills, um, of households for water bill, for their water consumption, oh, I don't think they would go that far in Rome, but in the provinces, these companies behave like colonizers. And so there were also discourses of colonialism that resonated here. And suddenly it seemed to me that a lot of what was happening there was, it was a financial struggle, but it was also a legal struggle. Uh, it was a struggle over sovereignty. It was a, this was the language that was used by activists themselves. Um, it was a, a struggle that sometimes also entailed aspects of violence, as was the case with the Irish, um, who were heavily, heavily policed as they were putting their bodies on the line to stop the metering. Um, and so these features that I saw um, as I was gathering the data more and more resembled um, a frontier in the classical sense, um, you know, an encroaching force, um, the battles that ensue, the league, the questions of sovereignty and law, who is the lawmaker, but then also enclosure, actually. Uh, and what does it mean to enclose a good that many people think should flow freely? What that means, ha that has its own meaning also. It doesn't mean that people aren't prepared to pay usually, but it shouldn't be taken and and um, privatized uh, and counted in the way and traded essentially, right? In a way that um, one can see historically, um, you know, E.P. Thompson's work describes for the enclosure movement uh, uh, in uh, Great Britain at the time. So... I think it was the field site itself and the sort of the constitutive features that made it up um, that made me think that this is a frontier struggle. And then I remember asking my my friend and colleague Tanya Lee in Toronto. I gave her my you know very early draft of my introduction to reading. I think, do you think this does this does this work? And sometimes you just need one person to say yes, and then you just kind of roll with it and run with it. And then of course I continued thinking about the concept with some other wonderful colleagues and interlocutors, and that's how it sort of took shape. Mm -hmm. And I mean, um, there's this. There's this idea of water is life on the one hand, and on the other hand, we are seeing kind of this like, uh, I mean, as you say, uh, primitive accumulation that happens with this financialization. Can you talk about these tensions? And I mean, this also in the end leads to us seeing the struggle as a struggle over value and value mm -hmm. of life. Can mm -hmm. you tell us a bit about how these interconnectedness? Yes. Um, so... When you look at investors, um, I was just looking again at the website of uh, Allianz Global Water. Um, they're all saying that in light of the intensification of water scarcity, um, the world essentially doesn't price water in the correct way. Um, otherwise, um, you know, Otherwise, we wouldn't be in the situation we are now, which is unequal distribution, um, wastefulness, uh, you know, intense pollution, and you know, just major problems with water provisioning and servicing that many people, including Maud Barlow, have documented for many decades. Um, the solution for these market actors, of course, is correct pricing uh, and the kinds of sort of mm, systemic equilibrations that will happen through correct pricing. Um, they all argue that water is too cheap 
and that prices need to go up. Um, Water movements say exactly the opposite, uh, which is that this is a resource that is life and it is so valuable that one might even say that it is in fact priceless. So this doesn't mean that we are not prepared to pay for our water because we know, water activists said to me, that you know this water infrastructure is expensive and so on and so forth. There were also some individuals who said that why isn't water free just like public education in places like Italy or Germany is free? Why not? I mean, water is just as fundamental and foundational as education. Um, so there were those people too. Um, but most people I met actually said, you know, these system of gr- systems have grown in a way that we are used to paying for it and we're ready to pay for this infrastructure, which is extremely expensive. Um, but we refuse to pay for it within a financialized system of debt financing where there's a guaranteed return of investment to investors who loan municipalities the money and they will insist on these this guaranteed ROI return of investment to the detriment of many other things, labor, uh, infrastructure, and you know, common people who often have to pay higher and higher bills. So their argument is, is that we have to devise a system where water, because it is water and because it is life, is fundamentally accessible. So rather than driving price up or believing that price has to be driven up, they say we need a fundamentally different governance structure and financing system to provide it because, and here they cite the UN, which is also the result of organizing and mobilizations, because water is a human right. And so this is something that we need to price justly and we need to price fairly. And um, maybe you know Andrea Ballesteros' work uh, on Costa Rica. She, to me, has written sort of the definitive article on how an ethical price is reached in this particular public water company um, because all of these other factors are taken into account. Um, You know, what does a household spend on basic goods? And within this larger context, how much would it be fair for water users and households to pay for water. This social pricing, as it's called, um, is already practiced um, by many water utilities, like Paris, which remunicipalized its water uh, utility many years ago and took it away from these two big water corporations, Violi and Suez. Um, But again, the idea of justice uh, and just price is not something, of course, that at the moment is the primary... um, primary uh, motivator um, for, you know, an investment group like uh, Allianz Global Water. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious lolly Focus Pops or lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. 
Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. And, I mean, you also talk about these public-private partnerships in which law plays a big role in paving the way to these companies. Uh, uh, can you tell us a bit about the, the role of law and what it does in your story? Mm-hmm. Well, um, one of the things I looked at um, was how in Italy, but also in Germany, um, and many scholars have written about this as well, um, lawmaking itself becomes an instrument for financialization. And the law, and the as uh, Catherine Pistor has said, is instrumental in coding capital, so to speak. In other words, the pathways for investments are created by law. So in Berlin, it was the Berlin Senate um, that reached certain agreements in 1999 with the Global Water Corporation, Suez. Um, Parts of these agreements were publicly discussed in parliament. Others were actually secret behind uh, closed doors and subject to non-disclosure. So the law itself was not only instrumental in um, uh, sort of opening the doors for financialization because it transformed the water utility um, into a shareholder corporation. Actually, the Berlin case was a little bit more complicated, but I won't bore you with that. But that's usually what happens. Um, um, And then um, allowed uh, for a guaranteed return of investment um, that was guaranteed by the city to Suez. um, And the same or something similar happened in it in, in Italy, um, where a series of not democratically discussed parliamentary decisions, but law decrees were passed um, without any parliamentary discussion um, to open up um, all public utilities. Actually, this was under Berlusconi, but also water utilities to privatization. Against this utilization of the law um, for the privatization and financialization of utilities, the Italians, but also the Berliners, uh, but also the people in Thessaloniki, and I have a whole long footnote in the book about that amazing thing that they did, but they essentially said, these laws don't represent us anymore. We would have never allowed this to happen because you've already taken everything away from us. You know, in the 1990s, you um, already privatized all the big things, um, you know, the postal service and the hospitals and all of those kinds of things. And now you're doing it in this backhanded manner uh, through these decrees that nobody really understands and that are dis- not even discussed in public by our, you know, our uh, parliamentarians. And so we will write our own laws. And so I have um, a point that I make in the book about the law of the few versus the law of the many, where um, what you see with water movements is that they frequently also um, use the instrument of the referendum if it's available to them and often achieve amazing results. Um, you know, if you ever get people to vote um, on whether they want to privatize their water or not, um, over 90% always will say no. Um, it's almost a guarantee. If it's a legal referendum, you know, and if you're lucky and you have a functioning democratic state, which is not the case in Italy, um, then, you know, you can be successful. In Italy, this referendum 
was betrayed, many people would say. In other cases, like in Thessaloniki, they didn't even have a legal pathway to do a referendum, but they did it anyway, in ways that I describe in the book. Um, they got the local bar association on their side, and they had these um, you know, um, international observers, water activists from, from elsewhere, and they basically created this simulacrum of a referendum. But they had the lawyers on their side, uh, and they had voting booths and all of that. And this simulacrum itself had such moral power that until this day, if I'm not, you know, if I'm pretty sure that this is still the case, I haven't checked, you know, in the last month or so. Um, uh, water is not um, privatized in the city of Thessaloniki, even though there was enormous pressure to do so. So the creativity of the law was something I became really interested in, is, um, you know, how people um, turn to the law as a sort of liberatory tool, but also as a tool for what the Italians called political alphabetization. It's a way to learn about what your rights are and also what what you what kind of an order and what forms of property and what forms of wealth and value you want to live with and introduce through the law. I mean, one of the things I found fascinating in the book is how you take up things like contracts or crazy bills as ethnographic objects and follow them. Can you tell us how, how you decided to center your kind of analysis around those kinds of objects? Mm -hmm. oh. Yes, so the bills um, were obvious that they were at the center of everything in Italy. Um, what was a huge political mobilization that uh, culminated in 2011, which is now a very long time ago, um, but that has had a long after effect in the Italian political scene, was all started by um, the first privatizations or partial privatizations of water utilities and um, the fact that people couldn't pay their bills. So bills, um, not just in the water sector, but also in the other utility sectors have become a point of contention. And the Italians have this great term of boletta pazza. Oh, I got this, you know, 3000 euro bill for my electricity and I'm a retiree and I have, you know, maximally 400 euros a month, uh, you know, for my pension. How can I pay this? So they appear in TV shows, they appear in demonstrations, um, they're burnt in public. Um, and I have a scene in the book where somebody was rummaging around. In fact, I think I start my book with one of those uh, vignettes where I was sitting in the living room and somebody was going through um, his uh, boxes in the living room and pulled out this crumpled piece of paper. And it was clear that he was holding this sort of iconic bill that had he had that had been photocopied many times and that had this crazy number on it. Um, and he showed it to me as evidence of the madness of a financialized water utility. The contract um, was something that... Um, I came to in Berlin because everyone talked about it uh, and everyone wanted to see it uh, because it was hidden. It was subject to non-disclosure and there were all these rumors around it. And, um, you know, people, um, there, yeah, there were these rumors about how long the contract was. Um, is it 8,000 pages? Is it 13,000 pages? You know, what the, 
relevant uh, parts of the contract were. Uh, at the end of the day, really, everything bow, uh, boiled down to one paragraph. Um, uh, I think it was paragraph 23B or something like that, that hid um, this one very scandalous fact in the contract secretly um, because the Berlin Senate had, Senate had slipped this little paragraph in without anyone knowing. And that paragraph said something like, we will always guarantee these profits to you, these guaranteed return of investment, even if we have to take up new debt to um, to do justice to this old debt. And that's, in fact, what Berlin eventually did. They took up whole new millions of new debt to just pay off the old debt, right? Um, and so I became interested in contract because I was listening to another podcast and I heard Hannah Appel talk about her book um, on the offshore oil industry. And this she was the first anthropologist I heard who was thinking about contracts um, ethnographically. And I was like, I want to do that too. And it was, as always, you know, people thinking through similar questions around, I guess, predatory capitalism and then how people even perceive this um, this thing, uh, this global, um, um, you know, what they often think of as this you know, the steamroller that is having all of these nefarious effects on local communities, uh, on labor relations, and so on and so forth. But how do they understand it? And one of them was a lot of talk about the contract uh, in her uh, field site. And so one thing led to another. We had a conversation. I asked her, I didn't even know her at the time. I just emailed her and I said, I need to talk to you about contracts. And so it also, again, emboldened me. You know, the process of writing a book is, I love it because it it I, I meet new people who are thinking about similar things, and then we embolden each other in some ways to to write about it. Or so there were a few wonderful people who kind of nudged me and said, "Yes, go for it. Um, this this makes total sense." And I mean, I also I, I was also wondering, like, what 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 do you see as some of the key differences between your field size that maybe affected the way those struggles took form? Mm -hmm. Well, um, I mean, I'm going to use the word culture here. <laughs> they are culturally and historically profoundly different field sites. I mean, the, the language is different. The legal systems are different. But also histories of political mobilization are different. Um, and they're really not comparable in many ways. Um, they, were, they were comparable in terms of the basic um, structuring, I think, um, uh, um, effects that um, the financialization of public utilities uh, create. So they create certain modes of secrecy. Um, they enhance a de-democratization of the political system. Um, they have an effect on household billing. Um, they um, have the effect that often infrastructures suffer. So there were some basic things that happened everywhere. And yet people responded in profoundly different ways. Um, so in Italy, I loved the fact that the water movement became the basis for massive social conversation around the question of the commons, Beni Comuni. That was not the same in in Germany, nor was it the same in Italy. I mean, I'll talk about the German case in a moment because I do have 
a similar conversation, but that wasn't really what moved this wave of activism. But in, in Italy, it was very interesting to see how in, involved also lawyers were. And lawyers, um, in contrast, that's what I was here, in contrast to German lawyers, Italian lawyers can be very left-leaning. There's a whole, you know, uh, just generations of lawyers who are very adept at political work. And so there were movement, uh, you know, uh, intellectuals coming, you know, women coming from households and people who were organizing on the ground in water committees, but they very quickly uh, came together with lawyers and politicians and ultimately some trade unions, although the trade unions were actually not very active in Italy, according to what many of my interlocutors said. And um, it became a very philosophical intellectual co- uh, question about um, uh, how, how can we think about the common I would say that, of course, there are resonances of, you know, the deep, deep leftist communist traditions in Italy that resonate here, um, the classic communist party, but also the um, autonomous communism, as well as, of course, the Catholic Church and its, um, you know, emphasis on the vitality and sacrality of water. They were all very, very important. In Germany, we had a very, very different kind of situation where we didn't have a massive social movement. We had a group, a group, uh, a small group, essentially, of people who thought it was scandalous um, that their water had been privatized, that the bills were so high. And they essentially launched a legal struggle, um, as well as one of the first and most important um, city referenda that ever passed in the city of Berlin. So the mechanism through which they argued was very, very different. There was almost no religion uh, present. Um, It was uh, organized, the discussion was organized around the concept of Gemeingut, um, which is not exactly like commons, but it has a long history um, in the German world as well. Um, And then in Ireland, I mean, in Ireland, it, it, it also had a different, you know, resonance because the materiality of the struggle was different. There, the problem was metering. And how do you stop meters if the meters are being planted into the sidewalks? There was massive physical, social barricades that were essentially put up by people stopping the metering. So it's, I think, you know, it's a mixture of political traditions, uh, political mobilizations, but also the actual, I think, material incursion of infrastructures and that then in some ways, I wouldn't say determined, but shaped the struggle. I have this whole thing on working class neighborhoods in Ireland and how they have a particular architecture. And I cite Joshua Clover's book on riot, strike riot, which I love, where he says, you know, the riot has a particular kind of architecture. So I I think closely about working class neighborhoods and how they often only have one entrance, which allowed for certain kinds of, you know, political things to happen. So, This is what I mean with, on the one hand, what I love is that these struggles were eminently comparable because they shared language on some level. Although the Irish, you know, very much used the language of slavery and, you know, we are being enslaved by the EU and there's clear resonances to anti-colonial struggles there. But so even there, the, the language was not similar and yet there were many similarities in arguments. And at the same time, you know, we anthropologists know that these these struggles ultimately are incomparable and we want to document them as best we can lovingly in their detail, if possible. Yeah. What a wonderful note also to end. But I, I before we end, I want to ask you, what's next? What, what are you working on nowadays? Oh, 
what a lovely question. <laughs> I um, would love to have the time to write a book proposal on the rights of nature slash earth law movement. Um, that is to say, um, through my water work, um, it's come to my attention already many years ago that you might know that um, nature, natural entities, and especially bodies of water have been granted standing in many courts across the world. Um, uh, the most famous case is the Waitangi River, New Zealand, but that's really just the most reported on case, I think, in the media. Um, there's hundreds of cases in Pennsylvania and Florida where ordinances have been passed you know, in small municipalities that have uh, granted groundwater and other watery entities rights. The Latin Americans, of course, have led this for a long time. And and uh, I was delighted to hear that um, in Peru in 2016, the largest left-breaking wave in the world was granted the right to flow. Um, that means that you cannot change the coastline and you cannot change the ocean floor in and around this particular wave. And of course, most recently, a lagoon in Spain was granted standing. So as a water person working on water and maritime issues, um, that's the direction I would like to go into for now. I mean, I look forward to reading that book and <laughs> seeing where, where it takes you. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you so much for uh, for being with us, Andrea. I just had a wonderful conversation with Andrea Mühlebach on her book, A Vital Frontier, Water Insurgencies in Europe, that came out of Duke University Press, and it's also open access, so you can yes. download the whole book. very important. Yeah, that was important to me, and I want to thank the University of Bremen for making that possible. So you don't have to pay for the book if you don't want to. Yeah, yeah that's great. Thank you so much. Until next time. Okay, thanks. <laughs>